Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at. I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles. How are you all doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. The reason I'm doing fantastic is because of the guest that I have today. And this gentleman's name is Mr. Paul Eno. As a matter of fact, I was just telling him right now before we started recording that I discovered him a few years ago um, where he, you know, he was already talking about uh, the paranormal, uh, different theories having to do with the paranormal or supernatural, etc., and believe me, one of the things I was fascinated back then when I discovered him, I want to say it was maybe seven or eight years ago, was that he made sense out of a subject that a lot of times some of the theories that are put out there are like, what? But anyway, not, uh, not surprisingly, he's been called the most intelligent voice in paranormal research today and one of the most visionary philosophers of our time. Uh, he was one of the first paranormal investigators of the early 1970s beginning while he was studying for the priesthood. Uh, his early mentors included parapsychology pioneer, Dr. Louisa Rhine, Father John J. Nicola, uh, who was a technical advisor for the film The Exorcist, and legendary first-generation ghost hunters Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, today, he's an internationally known broadcaster, an award-winning New England journalist, a graduate of two seminaries, the author of eight books, three of which are Amazon bestsellers, and he holds a rare PhD in philosophy. Um, in 2005, he Paul teamed up with his then 13-year-old son Ben to investigate cases starting with the Litchfield County Flap area and the haunted policeman of Vermont. And in 2008, the father-son partnered in the paranormal, launched the radio show Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And today, he still has a show Behind the Paranormal, which broadcasts weekly on WOON 1240 AM in the Providence, Boston quarter, and he streams live. Uh, right now, he has an estimated global audience of 3 million. So, wow. So, how are you doing today, Paul? Oh, better than nothing, Marlene. Uh, you've <laughs> helped my ego, though, I must say. Thank you. Isn't, well, you know what? That's that's what bios are for. It's, um, <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have you, and 
you know, I usually ask um, most of my guests, did they have childhood experiences with the paranormal? Is that what got them interested? Uh, was it as an adult? And you, there's mention here that you had contact with paranormal when you were in the seminary. Prior to that, as a child, did you ever have any experience? Well, maybe through the back door, in a sense, Marlene. Um, I, I had a very happy home until uh, the age of seven when uh, I was witness to my father's suicide. Oh, my God. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it was um, a very uh, traumatic situation, to say the least. Yes. Uh, wonderful man. And uh, at the time, now, the funny thing, I was the product of a mixed marriage. My father was a garden variety Protestant. My mother was a very strict Roman Catholic. And uh, my brother and I, my brother actually ended up a priest. And uh, with the both of us, it was 16 years apart, were educated in, in Catholic schools that were very, very strict at the time, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. In those days, if you ate a hot dog on Friday, uh, did this or that, or committed suicide, you went straight to hell. Yes. And here I was in second grade with the Sisters of Mercy. You can believe the name if you wish. Uh, oh, most certainly, them, because I went through from first through eighth grade with the Irish Sisters of Mercy, so I know exactly you what go. you're talking about. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about, that, that they were either saints or potential axe murderers. So <laughs> fortunately, I had one of the saints, Sister Mary Joel, I'll never forget it. She got me through this. Okay. By saying essentially that, you know, she kind of put her voice in, you know, God is kind of bigger than all that. Okay. But the, the question remained, you know, where was my father? What happened to him? And that kind of stuck in my mind. And at the age of 14, when you could still do this, I entered the seminary. The, the minor seminaries are called Preparation for the Priesthood. Okay. So <clears throat> I spent uh, uh, eight years in the Roman Catholic seminaries and then uh, went into the Eastern Orthodox uh, seminary, which was kind of traumatic because their priests are expected to be men. And that was kind of a new line, for, but, that, but that's a whole different story. Okay. But all through those periods, uh, I was very interested in where is my father? And the, the doctrine that most readily suggested itself was that of purgatory. Okay. And anybody who has, uh, has any smattering of Roman Catholic knowledge knows, they don't talk about much this much anymore, but if you were not quite bad enough to go to hell, not quite good enough to go to heaven, you would go to purgatory uh, to be purged, hence the name, and then be good enough to go to heaven, and also to satisfy the, uh, the Western craze for pigeonholing everything so we can understand it, mm-hmm. even if we don't. So uh, that, that was how I started. So. In 1970, while a young seminary student, I, I um, kind of, I, I should have kept more quiet about this because it got me in trouble, but uh, some other seminary students and I found uh, this, the, the so-called lost village of Pomfret, Connecticut in the northwest, northeastern part, lovely northeastern part of Connecticut. And I had encountered a, an article in the um, uh, Hartford Current newspaper about this old man would go running around in there and take these pictures and look at all kinds of funny things coming out in them. He said he didn't necessarily believe in ghosts, but he was a historian. And he, so anyway, I, we hooked up with him, and that's how my first case began in 1970, uh, actually going to the site in 71 and 72. So that, that was the origin of that. Okay. Wow. Uh, and that this was, and I want to point out for a lot of people because, especially, this was prior to the the the, the thing that came along with the Exorcist and all of this. This was before that took off, as far as uh, the interest. Oh, yeah. Well, it was you know people were maybe interested in it. Uh, the Warrens were out there already, you know, lecturing and stuff. But really, there was Hans Holzer and a few of the of mm-hmm. the headliners, you know. 
there really was this this was not the sort of thing you did on weekends and uh people looked at me if they i even told yes. them uh, particularly if they uh, were cler clergy uh and authority over me at the seminar that, what do you think you're doing you should have your nose in your books and you know uh, but i wasn't high up enough for them to pay much attention yet so uh, and um, w the, the purgatory theory not only fell flat on day one, uh, these people didn't seem to be dead at all, never mind in any kind of purgatory. Okay. So uh, things happened that, that just totally rocked my world, as they say, and ch started to change my ideas. And, and it took at least a good eight to ten years before thinking clarified into what I think I know today. And I still could be wrong, but it just the old ideas just didn't seem good enough in the face mm -hmm. of such physical phenomena as uh, an ox cart driver, you know, uh, coming down the road, you could hear the hoof beats and the wooden wheels and the guy yelling, yeah, the crack of a whip. Right. Um, I mean, were these dead people or people just going, was it time that we were dealing with? Right. Uh, and that was just, the, that was just the beginning. So um, ideas began to change immediately. Right. And it's, it's it's for some people and it's really interesting because some people when they come up against or they're exposed to these different ideas that challenge what they've been brought up in, especially if you're in a seminary, they do one of two things. They either forge ahead and kind of burn their bridges or <laughs> they retreat back into, no, I'll just not explore that because I don't know if I can handle the, the paradigm shift that, you know, what's coming with it. But it sounds like you said, I'm going forward with this. Uh, yeah, you might say that, and I'm, I'm still doing it, and then here, I, here it is almost 50 years later, but uh, <clears throat> that was, I didn't get in too much trouble. Actually, uh, by the time I got into the uh, quote-unquote major seminary, which is the last two years of college, and then uh, where, where you had to, at the time, ma major in philosophy, this is at a different seminary, the faculty was really quite sympathetic to this. I was shocked. Uh, oh. They had me working with the diocesan exorcist. Uh, in Augensburg, New York area, uh, all, all hush-hush, of course, in the, the local state hospital, uh, because things would happen, uh, for example, uh, you know, obviously if a, if a person is diagnosed schizophrenic and you know, get things going on, but if things are happening across the room, things flying off shelves in the patient's room, things of that kind, obviously the patient is not bringing this about directly, or at least physically. Wow. So uh, that's when they would begin to wonder, gee, maybe there's something else going on here, and Father Cotter and I would kind of be there um, to maybe... <laughs> well, I imagine I, I also never... that they would be interested in like the confidentiality, like we can't explain this, but let's call some priest in just in case because... Oh yeah, well he was the chaplain there anyway. Oh, okay. And one of the reasons we were there, and of course the seminarians were engaged in pastoral work there anyway, uh, ostensibly visiting patients and learning how to bedside manner and all that. But of course I was there also assisting him. Uh, so a number of adventures occurred there. And let me ask you, when you had exposure, like you said, to, let's say that you were called in, do you think, from what you saw, are we talking supernatural, or are we talking somebody that's just their PK or their kinetic energy that's being put out, or do you think it was sourced from some other place? Well, th these are all things that, that are possible, but uh, the party line at the time from the church was that these were demons, okay? Yeah. I.e., uh, servants of Satan yes. who happen to agree with our theology, which I think is rather a stretch. Okay, like they're going to do what we tell them. Um, when I got in there, I just and this and when I was working working with the Warrens or anybody else, I just this was their line too. I think it still is 
uh, Lorraine is still with us, but very, very uh, elderly. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it just that just again did not seem good enough. Just like it didn't seem good enough to think the guy driving the ox cart was dead and in some kind of purgatory. You know, right. um, there were some really scary things that happened. I just got the impression that the person uh, who was the possessed person. Okay, and you know the, the official church ritual. You go in and you and you exert authority over this spirit, quote unquote, uh, in the name of Christ. And I was, and sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. Okay. Uh, there was one, and I did not think this was a good idea. But I'm a 21-year-old seminary student, like they're going to listen to me. Um, it was uh, we were in there, and there were th- the three time, three exorcisms on the same person, 17-year-old girl who was just emaciated. It was awful. And I had to stand there with another attendant because she kept floating out of the chair. And to keep pushing her back down. She kept floating uh, out of the chair? Yes. Okay. Uh, in the middle of the ritual. So obviously something is going on besides uh, mental illness. You know, Shit, uh, you, yeah. can't, you can't have um, psychiatric uh, situations intertwined with paranormal issues, which makes it very complicated. And I, I'm, and I do not have a medical degree. As you said, it's in philosophy. But uh, on the other hand, you're not blind either. I just got mm-hmm. the impression this was, the doctors just did not know what to do. There was always a doctor present at each of these rituals. But, uh, I, of course, it's a very hush-hush. Yeah. Only the bishop knew about it. And, uh, and that was it. So um, I just got the impression that these people had bonded uh, voluntarily with another sort of life form Okay. that was a lot bigger than our narrow concepts had uh, had us believing. Okay. I came to the, by the end of the decade, by the end of the 70s, uh, it, it seemed clear to me that we were dealing not with demons in, in the classical sense, but with parasites, mm-hmm. parasitical entities, life forms, uh, creatures from nature, although very bizarre corners of nature, okay. who uh, came in from parallel worlds. Now, in the mid-70s, in total confusion, and I should say the late 70s, uh, total confusion over what I was seeing. I encountered the idea of quantum mechanics. Okay. Now, physicists, many of whom I've talked to, will sometimes get frustrated with somebody like me with a degree in something else, you know, taking this and then running with it. But I, I could never, to this, I can't to this day think of any other explanation that's better okay. than the idea that we have parallel, very physical worlds in most cases, uh, where all possibilities exist, even if we don't experience them in our life. Uh, where uh, Uncle Chuck never died, and where you can have intersects, overlaps, and overwashes where Uncle Chuck is skipping down the street uh, three years after his funeral here. Okay. You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Or where you have parasitical entities uh, that are are feeding upon our essentially negative energy. I can't put any any finger on it than that. Um, And then... This became sort of confirmed in uh, the 1974 case in Bridgeport, Connecticut with the Warrens and that poltergeist situation that William J. Hall wrote uh, the, the uh, very excellent book about. It. You, you ought to have him on if you haven't already, uh, The World's Most Haunted House. Okay. And he went and he talked to me, uh, all the surviving witnesses to what, was, what had to be the best documented and best witness poltergeist case probably in history, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, 74. And, you know, I stood there with three police officers and three firefighters and watched a refrigerator, about 300 pounds worth of it, float off the kitchen floor. And this wow. happened on several occasions. 
And uh, how could this happen? What was an entity? Do, was this a demon? Of course, to the Warrens, this is a demon. And we sat around for three days waiting for the Bishop of Bridgeport to give permission for an exorcism. Now, other denominations, or, or uh, particularly uh, uh, the Orthodox Christians, or, or, or the Jewish faith, or, mm -hmm. or the Muslim, you know, they don't have this this institutionalized kind of thing where you have to sit around and wait for a bishop. So it's a little easier with them. Right. But in any case, I just got the impression this is not what was really going on. Um, there were four entities in this house. Okay. Uh, I had physical encounter on one trying to protect the little girl on the second night of the case, Monday night, on November twenty fifth, nineteen seventy four, and I, again, none of this uh, matched the old ideas about what this was, and I really got the impression that this is definitely uh, something else, some some other part of nature, undiscovered science, okay, parasite. All right. Very smart. Quickly learning entities, mm -hmm. uh, hungry and hostile, and we are among their food sources. What do you see? You, you know, you know. Uh, historically, there's appears to be a correlation between poltergeist activity and adolescence. Did you find that 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 there was something about adolescence because of maybe extra energy that they put out? Or did you come across other cases where it didn't really matter the age of the person? And I understand perfectly well what you're describing there as some type of parasitic form, depend, whether you, whatever type of label you want to put on it, but that ultimately it's, it has a negative impact on the human being that it's, that it's using. Well, kind of all of the above, Marlene, really, uh, depending on – every case is different. Uh, the, the other party line that I was dealing with at the time was that of parapsychology. Because okay. Dr. Louisa Ryan uh, was uh, the wife of, doc of Dr. J.B. Ryan, both brilliant uh, psychologists who, who uh, pioneered the science of parapsychology in the 20th century. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Louisa particularly was interested in ESP and children. She did a lot of research on that. And she wasn't too interested in my poltergeist theory, but she was uh, very, very interested in other possibilities than spirits, you know, for these things. So uh, in the case of the Bridgeport House, you had what appeared to be a classic uh, parapsychological, parapsychological situation where a, a young girl, in this case Marcy, age 10, uh, had been uh, confined to the house by overprotective parents. And she'd been in there for six weeks, hadn't been out the door. And this is a little tiny house because she'd been bullied. At, as in, uh, in today's terms, we would say bullied at school. Right. Uh, physically injured, as a matter of fact. So here you have the, the perfect stage for the classic idea of someone putting out a lot of energy, mm -hmm. uh, entering the pubescent stage of life, and uh, so and and you know producing what essentially a Tibetan Buddhist might say a thought form or a tulpa or something. Right, a tulpa, yes. Uh, and and out you get uh, you know this all this activity, uh, or maybe even something that's not recognizable as an entity, but um, is doing this activity. Okay. I didn't believe that either any more than I believed the demon theory because it just didn't – it wasn't good enough. I got the very strong impression there were four uh, creatures, entities okay. in this house. Okay. And uh, that they were – and I always find that these parasites will concentrate usually on one person at a time, even if they're working in packs, farming, for lack of a better term, a family. Mm -hmm. They seem to concentrate on one, at, one person at a time. Yes. Uh, We've had situations where it's concentrated on uh, the woman in, in uh, I'm thinking of a Burlville, Rhode Island case um, in, uh, from 1998 up until recently. Ben and I work on cases for years. We don't just swoop in with stuff. Uh, you know, we, we follow up, even if it's far away. Okay. So 
in this case, there was a woman who was the target. Uh, when we sort of trained her to be to cut off the food supply, and Ben and I joke that we use the Peter Pan theory. Think <laughs> happy thoughts. Come together with your loved ones. It's very simple, really. Right. Bring in humor in your family. Yes. As long as it's positive. Don't laugh at each other, but, you know, that sort of thing. Keep it positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith, anything, love especially. And uh, come together. And that turns off the food supply. And th- this thing got so frustrated in, the, in this house in Rhode Island, they could literally hear it pacing up and down the hallway at night. Wow. And then it went after the daughter. So then, then we had to go help the daughter, you know, learn to do this. Who, and she was pretty good at because she'd been involved in the whole thing. We don't keep the children out of this. Mm-hmm. So I think that you, you've got a lot more to it than just someone who's approaching an age where they're putting out a lot of energy. I think that that is, it's a, in a negative situation such as the Bridgeport House uh, will ring the dinner bell, as it were, for these parasites. So um, I think that uh, it's really six of one, half dozen of the other, and you have to deal with each case individually, because you can't assume that the party line causes, whether demons or uh, some kind of parapsychological mechanics here, uh, okay. are at work in any case. Let me ask you something. In Obviously, since you've uh, been involved in so many of these cases, do you see a pattern where there's some type of crisis, whether it's emotional trauma or something in the family to an individual that precedes, in other words, opens the door for this to happen? Very often, yes. Uh, there are every family has stress. Every family has things that, that happen. You know, you try and roll with it. Mm-hmm. But some are more so than others. Um, but I think that there's more than. I mean, financial stresses, uh, marital stresses. Uh, I very often find that the, that the the kids don't talk to the parents, right. and maybe one of the kids is involved with something really negative, uh, some really negative occult thing. You find that mm-hmm. all the time. Parents don't know about it or do know about it and can or won't do anything about it. They're all, as I say, it's, it's very, very uh, case by case in this sense. Sure. But yes, you do find negative situations. You do find people separated from each other. And these, um, these parasites um, seem to, to thrive on division. Yes. Uh, when, and you know, it sounds hokey or corny, but this really is, seems to be as real as it gets. Um, and one wonders, uh, not only in families or in, in people's lives, one wonders what influences do these uh, these parasites have in the public forum. Yes, I mean not to get not to get nuts here, but I mean, think of, of the nourishment they could mm-hmm. attain through war. Yes, through the 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 politics of America today. Right. If that's if exactly I mean, if, if that's, that's the what Russians, they feed off of. Yeah, um, the parasites want to divide us. I don't know, maybe the Russians are doing it. I don't know, but who knows? I mean, not to get into that, but. I mean, this division sure. is just killing us. It kills families. It kills, you know. Yes. So, I mean, good grief. So, yeah, I mean, yeah this, this can reach to all sorts of levels. Well, and, and I, I'm sure you've come across, I mean, families, nobody ha- leads perfect lives. Everybody has yeah. you know, things that go wrong. It, it happens. But I don't know sure. if you've ever seen, there's some families where you go back even generations and you see like, like I want to I use this word lightly, but it's appropriate, almost like curse, like, the eighty percent of their lives are very negative with just, and it makes you wonder. Like, do you think that some of the influence of these type of uh, let's call them creatures, for lack of a better word, even that it it basically sticks to a family? Oh yes, absolutely, Marlene. I've seen that. I'll give you an example. Um, in I was giving a talk in California, in San Diego, uh, some years ago, and uh, there was a large audience, but there there were there was one person who just 
sort of stood out in the sense it kept drawing my attention. And she was just sitting there, doing anything to draw my attention. Um, after the after the uh, the lecture, uh, people came up, and she was one of them. And I said, I didn't mean to keep looking at you, but you just some, there's something about you that drew my attention, and it's not necessarily good. She said, you know, those parasites you were talking about, we've had some following my family for generations. Okay. And it was um, – sometimes you find uh, the, the, the kind of uh, parasite that manifests depends on the ethnic background of the family. Mm-hmm. Irish people tend to see banshees. Right. If, if you've got a cultural um, continuum there – the parasites tie into that, and they will sometimes be what you expect them to be, so they can push buttons more. Mm-hmm. This particular family happened to be Italian American, and uh, they, they had all had psychic abilities before that. And, and you find plenty of families with psychic abilities around the family, but they don't necessarily have parasites. Exactly. Uh, but this this one did, and uh, a long time to kind of maybe help her. And this is a long distance because I'm from New England, uh, over the phone to kind of work work out some of this. And uh, there were there was a sort of melancholy in the whole family because of, of this long-standing situation. People kind of accepted it. Okay. But I do find that that happens. And Marlene, another thing I should point out in parasite cases is it's not, it's not just the people. It's the site itself. Yes. Now, um, our very dear friend Shane Searway, who I, I know you're aware of, um, will say it's not people that are – it's not places that are haunted. It's people. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of – to some extent he's right, but there are characteristics at a particular site that will exacerbate the situation. Yes. And oddly enough, um, you know, years ago I'd go in, we had a larger team. I had uh, an, a professor of electrical engineering from the University of Rhode Island, and I had a soil engineer and hydrologist would come in on cases. People say, oh, do you bring uh, the local psychic? No, I bring a hydrologist. I go, what? Psy- a physicist? And <laughs> yes. You know, and then there's a place for everyone in this, but mm-hmm. but, but these, these particular folks would find clay soils, sandy soils, high water tables, and unless the water is distilled, it will conduct electricity and electromagnetic fields, and therefore you, you have um, a higher chance of something going on. Because what did um, essentially um, Einstein say about gravitational electrical anomalies? They can bend space-time. Maybe they allow for, at least in our, in our uh, scenario, they allow for what Native Americans would call thin places, places where the boundaries between parallel worlds uh, are thinner. And right. there can be overwashes and overlaps. And in speaking with shaman, uh, I remember what, in just 1979 alone, I spoke with a shaman in Australia, Aboriginal elder, and one uh, from the Cree Nation in Quebec. And they both told me the same, different ends of the planet, both told me the same thing, that... Uh, and I was lucky because they usually don't talk to outsiders, but they said, uh, you're, you're on the right track. Uh, this whole parallel worlds thing is essentially what we do. We will couch it in other terms. You know, we'll, we'll go into a parallel world where so-and-so does not have cancer because okay. there are other versions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Literally grab that and, and bring it back into our world, and all of a sudden the person's healed. So that, that doesn't always work that easily. But right. that's, that's, in a nutshell, essentially what we do. So... Um, Hence the, the idea of the parallel world thing, parasites coming and going, uh, UFOs coming in, and yes. coming and going, people who were dead here but not there coming. So, so it really kind of opened up the whole possibility. So if that's the correct theory, um, I, it's, it's either correct or I'm a self-satisfied idiot. I don't know what I mean. It's, like, it's here because, I mean, there's a lot of, there's the theories of different dimensions, but what you're talking also is in a well- in, in a way, like a parallel to ours is what you're saying, as far as people and places? 
Yeah, essentially, yes. Uh, the, the thing to that's awfully difficult to grasp sometimes is that there are so many of these parallel worlds. Now, people are maybe familiar with string theories. Okay, there are eleven dimensions. Mm-hmm. Well, dimensions are not the same thing as parallel worlds, strictly exactly. speaking. Exactly. Uh, in quantum mechanics, you know, deepest, darkest quantum mechanics, there's the idea uh, that all things that can be, will be, have been, are actually real in concrete form and all existing simultaneously. Because what, what did Albert Einstein do in 1952? Out comes the theory of relativity, his book Relativity, and he said essentially a time doesn't really exist. It's a function of our consciousness. There is no past, there is no future. It's all simultaneous. Right. Now, given the fact that, that he thought quantum, quantum mechanics was, he didn't disbelieve it, but he thought it was just too crazy. Einstein thought it was too crazy. Uh, however, he didn't disbelieve it. So you take that and then put it together with the idea that there are parallel worlds, infinite numbers of them, uh, with you know, many, many versions of ourselves right. and events. Uh, th- there are many worlds in which we've already died. And if we come close to them, and this is why I've often run into ghosts who think we're ghosts haunting them. Right. They're going about their daily lives. And because they see us as we see them. Why? Because you get this plasma charge boundary. Uh, physicists call it a brain, B-R-A-N-E, or a membrane. And you look across and you see this glowing thing. What else are you going to think? Oh, yeah, it's the spirit of some dead person. What else could it be? Because most of us have a very narrow paradigm that way. Sure. So these are all kind of new ways to look at it. It's not original with us. Um, it's becoming very, very uh, um, uh, common in the paranormal community and the, the scientific end and the popular end, too, to start looking at things a little bigger uh, through this theory. And what's really interesting, and, and I've noticed uh, even, let's say, with extraterrestrial life, that some people, you know, there's always the thought they're coming from another planet versus they're coming from another dimension or that's how they travel interdimensionally. Or both. Uh, and, of course, that also explains in some cases the sightings of cryptids. Sure. Sometimes for a period of time and then it stops. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, well this, this is what this theory does too. It, it gets into other areas of the paranormal because we would be, I began to notice in the 1980s that, uh, gee, maybe I should look outside this particular house or this particular, you know, quote-unquote haunted piece of woodland or something. And when you did look out there, you would find other things. I kept writing into UFO sightings people uh, would have. Yes. And uh, people say, okay, well, what's that got to do with ghosts? Well, they have everything to do with ghosts. Yes. Uh, first of all, we look at things in certain contexts. If you're sitting in your living room and, you know, this, this fluky little light goes flying, aha, a ghost. But if you're out in your yard or in a field – and there's the same light with, a, with with maybe a big ball of light over it or a de- aha, an alien. And maybe it's neither, you know. Uh, maybe it's something that we haven't uh, encountered yet in our human experience or at least not in the way that, that uh, might explain it more fully. So, uh, yeah, so we're, lo- we're looking at we, – we call it the pan-paranormal phenomenon, uh, looking at all sorts of things. And so uh, uh, people of the caliber of uh, Kathleen Marden from MUFON Mm-hmm. Uh, has been uh, working with us for years now on crossover phenomena. She'll be investigating. Uh, she, of course, is the, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, yes. She's one of your fellow Floridians, uh, too, and uh, originally from New Hampshire. And we see her frequently, not as often as we'd like, but she works uh, with us sometimes on these phenomena. Where she'll be, uh, She's had her abduction research for MUFON. 
Okay. You know, abductees, and you know, they've had this abduction experience, and this and that happened. Might be pleasant, might might be not not pleasant so so much. Mm-hmm. But they'll have uh, poltergeist stuff start taking place in their house. You know, they'll see Aunt Gertrude come, uh, you know, running through the kitchen, and she's been dead for twenty years. You know, <laughs> this kind of thing, and uh, things you can't even have names for yet uh, yes. that, that occur. And all these things, because why? Uh, in our theory, and Kathleen tends to agree with this, you've got you live in an, at an intersect area, a place where the, the membranes are thin, they mm-hmm. overwash, they overlap, uh, they intersect, and uh, you will notice the inhabitant, even other versions of yourself. You don't believe some of the, uh, the information we get at the show from listeners that say, gee, I walked into my kitchen, and there I was sitting at the table. Doppelganger yes. kind of deal. Doppelganger yeah. kind of thing. There's na- there are names in literature and science for this, well, some science for all this stuff. But um, we could be looking at, a, at a, a general theory of the paranormal that might get us farther toward understanding uh, some of the stuff that's even worse than, than the, the classical ideas, you know? Well, I mean, once I think you kind of wrap your head around that, it's just like your horizons, like fall off the horizon. It's like, what else is out there? That... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what that? What and me, us but... humans, we're like, oh, don't, I don't want to, don't, I can't handle that. Because... Well, it took 10 years for this to happen to me because I was so pig-headed. Plus, I was uh, up in 7, I was in the seminary. And in 75, I switched to, to the Eastern Orthodox Seminary. That, uh, it just happened to be at the right level. I started studying for the, their priesthood. But then they had enough of me after two years because, uh, like, you know, what are you doing Look, with the paranormal? You got better things to do. And uh, yeah. so out I went with, like, a year to go before ordination. Uh, I was still dealing with the idea that I was supposed to find a wife. in the Roman Catholic Seminary, no, no, no to that. The Orthodox is <laughs> just the opposite. They don't trust unmarried parish priests, which was a whole new song for me. I didn't even think of that. So I had all that going on, and then uh, along, then I, so I'm out on my ear in 1977. All my life I prepared for the priesthood. What do I do now? Wow. The only other thing I could do was write. So I just, by dumb luck, I stumbled into, uh, there's one lonely newspaper in New England that, w- that would talk to me, because I'd never studied journalism before, and I got my sh- shoe in the door. And I realized why, because the, the uh, um, editor was named, his nickname was Terrible Ted, and uh, he was like... Perry White on steroids, (laughs) white hair, yelled all the time in the newsroom. Eight months, I was number two in seniority in the newsroom. So that's why I got in so easy. Nobody else. I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, sure. You sure you want this job? Okay. And so paranormal research became part of journalism. Wow. So um, uh, that's it has been ever since. And so that that was the story of how that happened. No, and, and it's like. Like you said, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it's like, like you said, about the only ones that had books out was Hans Holzer. And, you know, he yeah. would talk about all these revolutionary time mansions. And that was the extent of it. And then it kind of moved a little bit forward into the 70s and 80s as far as other shows and everything. But back then it was very, um, people didn't really even talk about it that much, even if they were having their own experiences, because people would look at you like, what's wrong with you? You saw what you have this or God forbid if you're having some type of what you described as somebody that's displaying uh you know their either possession or something like that that was a well, difficult thing my poor wife who was um quite the <laughs> lady and uh in 37 years of marriage she's come on one case and she's very sensitive but she blocks it she doesn't want to deal with it. and she came on one case and swore she'd never do it again so but yeah. she you know she uh Accepts all my uh, eccentricities. Oh. Well, that 
that's what's necessary. Yeah, everybody you know, allow that other person to do their dead. thing, even if you're like, yeah, I'll just stay home. And you come and tell me about it when you get home. She doesn't want to hear about it. I, oh, <laughs> yeah, everybody's different, and that that that's fine. I to me, it's like I think the the part the, the problem comes in when the other person doesn't is not on board with you and doesn't want you to participate or do anything with it, especially if it's a passion, which is what it sounds like. Yeah, that it is. There for are a lot you. of people. Um, Unfortunately, that, that that has happened with. Yes. Um, and and uh, we are not advocates for people to go out and do this. No. Um, it's funny because I, I, down in your neck of the woods, I'm thinking of uh, 04 when I was down at uh, in Clearwater uh, at that, that big hotel, the, the Bellevue Bill. The Bellevue, yes. I got to go into the Bellevue yeah. before they closed it up. Oh, it's closed now? The last time I checked, I've been checking up on it for the last, I want to say, oh. three or four years. Okay. And uh, they closed it up and it's changed ownership various times as far as what they were going to do with it, because it's a huge property. Oh, yeah. The and the largest, last, uh, I checked like maybe less than a year ago, and another company had bought it, and they were going to basically renovate it and reopen it, and I haven't checked, but it's been closed for like four years. Oh, okay. Well, in any case, it was supposed to be notoriously haunted, yes. and there was a conference there in 2004 for uh, beginning ghost hunters, and uh, they, they flew me down to speak out against my better judgment because I um, you know, I'm sitting there and they go, oh, Mr. You know, what, what's your advice for getting ghost hunters? And if you could sum it up. And I said, don't. You have no idea what you're doing, what you're touching, and where it's going to lead. And 230 people just sort of stared at me with their mouths open. But then I said, well, here we all are. So I suppose we might as well discuss it. Yeah. And uh, there were, you know, a number of other people too, including Murray Silver from Savannah, who became a good friend. This is the first time I'd met him. And, um, tends to agree with me but again people are going to do it and mm-hmm. they do do it and so uh, people said you do it so i said well i, don't, I kind of blundered into it i mean i had some training i don't know if the theology was relevant or the philosophy uh and the mentoring i don't know um there are no experts in this field they're just people with interesting ideas so people are going to do it so maybe they should have the best uh, resources they can well um i think i think the problem sometimes comes in when people that go into it are thrill seekers versus somebody that's really truly interested in the phenomena yes very true so when you get a thrill seeker that doesn't get something they try to do stupid stuff to get the thrill yes and one of two things happen nothing happens and they get disinterested or then they get more than they bargained for oh yes very (laughs) often uh one or the other sometimes the latter you know yes absolutely uh, Absolutely. But also, uh, as well as uh, UFOs and things of this kind, we, run into, we began running into uh, Bigfoot and other cryptids. Uh, one of the wildest examples of this started in 05. As a matter of fact, it was my son's, uh, and you brought it up at the beginning, the Litchfield, Connecticut Triangle case, as we call it, a mm-hmm. uh, house in Torrington, a old, lovely old uh, 1793 farmhouse, uh, where six generations of the family had lived and still were living. I think that's kind of neat. Yes. And... In the course of 10 years of investigating, really more than that now, of course, uh, 13 years going on, uh, it turns out that the uh, the homeowner was a uh, cousin of ours, distant cousin. Wow. Because <laughs> uh, the old Yankee families, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, she had lived there for 62 years when we started coming in on the case. Uh, and the, she had had a diary uh, of all the weird things that had happened wow. over all those years. They included not only ghostly phenomena, but, uh, you know, horses galloping up and down the hallways, uh, strange boxy figures. I mean, things that don't even have names yet. Right. You know, kind of dancing by the windows. Very, very tall robed figures. 
sometimes their heads sticking through the ceiling because they were so tall they couldn't fit in the what? rooms. Uh, legs hanging. See, this is seen by the entire family. Legs hanging from the ceiling of the living room, walking as if on a surface that was not present in our room. Okay. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. Uh, our first time there was in uh, August 5th, uh, 2005. And again, Ben was only 13. There were pictures of him, and he was a little kid. And we had our very first video camera. And uh, he was using that. And I went out, and I, it was outside by on a stone wall by, by the driveway. Get very old farm. It's a very rural area. And I could hear a horse galloping toward the, uh, the wall. Oh, wow. <coughs> and uh, I couldn't see it. It went by. I could feel the wind from it. Are you kidding? You felt the actual wind? like? Yes. Wow. Yeah, almost like, like this Lost Village case from 1970 and 71. And all of a sudden, um, uh, it galloped across the road and disappeared into what would be the woods. But again, I didn't see it. Um, when you'd go into the, the house, uh, the, the place, uh, you're sitting at the dining room table, it seemed crowded. You could feel people walking around. And again, it's like all six generations of the family were still here. But there was nothing negative. And this gets back to one of our uh, points earlier, Marlene. And if, if the people themselves are positive, um, negativity is kind of repelled. Mm-hmm. These people are absolutely lovely people, uh, the family that had been there for so long. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. They had been uh, very positive in the upbringing of their children, etc. And all this stuff is going on there. It was, it was like a circus. But nothing negative seems to be able to get through. Now, if the Manson family moved in there, I mean, oh wow, it. yeah, I can imagine. And how so far back how- did they had they ex- had the family <coughs> been? Ex- because it sounds almost like it's the place, and they just happened to have built a house there. Well, well, that's possible too. You have a high water table and all this sort of thing that does go along with it. Uh, there, it had been originally in 1793 a general store. Oh, so you can be in there, and you can you can hear uh, cloth unrolling like from a roller. Sometimes you can hear people talking as if the parallel world where that's still going on, because yeah. everything's simultaneous in this theory, where it still is a general store is still happening. What, what, what all the horses are doing, I don't know. I mean, I think part of the building was a stable. Well, yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. I, when you said general store, I was thinking, man, I wonder if they had like a stable that was oh, yes, part of the sure. store or something on the outside yeah. or... And because, um, you know, most people don't have uh, the sound of horses galloping down their hallways. You know, that can be a little disconcerting if you're not used yeah. to it. But, uh, uh, again, nothing overtly negative. But I think that uh, it would be if the wrong people lived there. Oh, sure. So uh, our, our case uh, spread from there. And uh, by, the, by 2005, we knew well enough to certainly to ask okay, the, the neighbors are probably if you can talk to the neighbors they almost certainly have strange stuff going on too and sure enough uh, there was uh, the house right across the road and kind of down a little bit uh, this fellow was a, was a big tough Vietnam vet uh, wasn't afraid of anything but he he would not be in the house by himself he and his oh. wife would always go out together or they'd be in the house together okay? oh, God, and um because a, a number of suicides had taken place there. This expanded uh, to uh, UFO sightings in this area uh, by, uh, by 08 and 09. People in Goshen, Connecticut, were getting out of their cars in this vicinity, watching strange lights go down behind Mohawk Mountain. We ourselves, uh, Ben and I, saw these too. Uh, by 09, <clears throat> the military had shown up. Now, this is another, another layer of all this. Okay. Uh, these, these are what we call flap areas. 
Okay, now it's kind of arbitrary. They do seem to be in triangles, but they can embrace 220 to 250 square miles or more. Okay. And we're investigating six of them, uh, different, well, including in Europe at this point. Uh, but the one in, in the Litchfield area, uh, it was just typical because the military always shows up. Now, why would that be? Hmm. Uh, now, in the case of Litchfield, the, the, that area, uh, there were ground troops. They didn't care who knew it. There were ground troop movements, lots of air, air movements. Uh, people would be walking their dogs, say, uh, to the edge of their own property, um, on, on, like a farm, and armed uh, people, at least who looked like troops. You never know. These. You don't know if this is the government yeah. or not. You know, uh, dressed in camo or in black uh, with M-16s would say, sir, uh, you know, you cannot walk in this direction to just please turn around and go back. You know, very firm, but very courteous. Wow. Uh, Mark D'Antonio, a uh, distinguished astronomer who is a dear friend of ours and sometimes co-hosts our show, uh, is um, and MUFON's director of photo and video analysis, had uh, grew up and lives in this area. And he said that he uh, had strange experiences growing up, but that a good friend of his uh, was fishing at a place he'd fished since he was a kid. All of a sudden, a Humvee pulls up. These, these armed guys get out and say, so you can't fish her anymore. Like, period. Like, see you later. Off they go. Uh, this all seemed to be centered on a, uh, we call it the funny farm. Uh, it's a farm with um, no farming, uh, rather extensive, abuts mm -hmm. land owned by the state of Connecticut, and we later found out uh, is right across from a, a plot of land owned by the U.S. Army, which has a very funny windowless building on it with antenna and all kinds of wires that go over to the farm. Really? I mean, you know, how subtle can you get here? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, <clears throat> we were there in... Um, 2010 doing a uh, pilot for a TV show. Uh, every once in a while we're approached by producers to do something, but then, uh, especially if it's on this area, something quashes it. All of a sudden, and we had Meryl Streep, who has a house in the area, okay. involved in uh, the, the latest one we did there, uh, pilot, and she was in the sizzler reel and all this stuff. <coughs> Excuse me, the wrong sizzler reel went out to the networks, who always come back and say we're too intelligent anyway. Which I think is a mistake because people want more authenticity now. So whatever, we were down there doing this, and uh, we got not only some interesting footage at that farm, uh, we got a, a, a thing at uh, the point three of the triangle. See, the house I first described is point one. The, the funny farm is point two. Okay. And point three, we triangulated, uh -huh. and uh, is in a very strange kind of a swamp where a brook splits into two, goes around like an island with all these funny stones on it. Okay. And that's a place where where Ben tends to have shamanic experiences. He doesn't like to talk about it. Okay. But he collapsed, floated off the ground. This was on camera. What? With this director producer from New York. And we have never been allowed to see that footage because somebody got in there and quashed the whole thing. Because Ben said they, meaning whoever's working at the funny farm, is looking in the wrong place for point three. He thought they were doing experiments with generating power by these membranes. Right. Or portal, if you want to use a traditional term. So we could talk all day and all night for a week about this stuff and not even scratch the surface. So this is our Litchfield Triangle case, and this is what happens when you start to look outside. I was going to tell you, I mean, when I see that, it almost makes me think that – I'm going to use the word portal because that's the closest thing I can think of as far as a doorway or, I mean, uh, a gateway, something where maybe for whatever reason that we don't understand – it's just either because it's naturally there or because whoever, whatever's in the other dimensions actually put it there. We don't know. But that's what it sounds like. 
it, it, it does. And, you know, there may be more to it. We may be simplistic about it, but it does seem that um, w- wouldn't uh, the government or, or industry even love to weaponize the paranormal or at least find out where does Bigfoot come from or go? Where do the UFOs come from? Where yes. do ghosts come from? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I think that this this may be the reason why there's such secrecy. Yes. Uh, down in the um, Pennsylvania Triangle, which we've been working on since 2016, mm-hmm. a relatively new case for us, uh, I myself had a Bigfoot experience. <gasps> you so did? What happened? Yes. What happened? Okay, well, <clears throat> sorry. The uh, Okay, well, one of the things... These people had read about the Litchfield case and just said, my gosh, these are the sorts of things that are happening around here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are Bigfoot sightings in Litchfield there. So we went down there, and this is a farming area, uh, rural, of course, but it's not wilderness by any means. There are, again, in the, in the vicinity of West Central Pennsylvania, Dubois area but between there and Pittsburgh. And it's um, there, there are tracts of forest, but, you know, 10, 20 acres maybe. Uh, open farmland, this sort of thing. Where would a population of Bigfoot come from and go to? But every everybody has seen it. We have had, um, and we're having, we're going back again. Uh, I, I don't want to say when, because people are watching us. Mm-hmm. Um, there are um, up to twenty families who will show up at neighborhood meetings we have there, and every single one of them has had Bigfoot and UFO experiences. Wow. Sometimes ghostly experiences. Wow. Ben and I, and there was a little girl who had a horrific Bigfoot experience in the road, not a quarter mile from where we were sitting, was so terrified that she wouldn't, she wouldn't, she was crying. She wouldn't talk to us. Of course, I was here, these two weird guys from New England with beards. Maybe that was, but <laughs> we hope that she'll talk to us next time. Um, so what, what happened to me was this September 16th, 2016. Uh, for people who have good memories, it's, it was a brilliant moonlit night here in the Northeast. A little chilly, and I had staked myself up in the upper field above our center of operations because we were mm-hmm. only just beginning to expand the envelope on this case. And people, we had we had gotten some photographs of some very strange lights in the sky and on the ground in this field the previous May. <clears throat> so what we did, uh, I was by myself. I had the, the uh, it was chilly, so I had the the driver's side window on my truck was up, okay. but the other window was down. Okay. And I'm looking for strange lights. I have the camera set up in the, in the bed of the truck and all this. And uh, all of a sudden, there was something go- weird going on to my left. I could hear snuffling like under this old deer blind where it was all growing. I thought, oh, it was probably a bear because, you know, a lot of bears. Right. So something to my right grabs my attention. And in the brilliant moonlight, maybe 200 feet away, I see these this big brown figure. The two legs moving up and down very deliberately, coming up towards the center of the field. <coughs> Excuse me, getting over uh, allergy attack. Um, I know what that's like. <laughs> and so, and its head was down as if looking for something. I was utterly flabbergasted. I can't after imagine. Years, after almost fifty years of doing this, you think I'd know not to expect anything in particular, but to not to be surprised. Uh huh. And so. Naturally, I raised the infrared camera, shoot through the cold window. Naturally, there's no heat signature. So I went to get out of the truck, and um, all of a sudden, the phone rings. Oh, my, my God. Phone. And, Paul, why didn't you turn off the phone? I'm a little new to this Bigfoot stuff. Closest I ever came to divorce, Marlene, I'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm in the middle of a Bigfoot sighting. <laughs> I said, what? Who's going to call me in the middle of the night, in the middle of a field in Pennsylvania, right? 
So by that time, it's long gone. And um, a few minutes later, I see these lights up in this tree. And I was uh, just, and it didn't look particularly weird. It looked like a spotlight or flashlight. And uh, the, um, so I didn't want to take off across the field. The truck, I didn't know if there was a, you know, something. Right. Swallow the truck or what, <coughs> holes or whatever. So the next night we had this um, neighborhood meeting, and I, I told this story. And then the next morning, because we were out in Shane Seaway and I measured it, and we, we could see the track of something very large that had gotten up to that point. <coughs> I'm sorry. And okay. uh, had turned around and gone back, probably when my wife called, and the uh, ringtone, uh, the, uh, the theme from Lord of the Rings goes back. And I, <laughs> <coughs> so I told this, this uh, story uh, to the 20 families assembled. Hand went up, and it was a woman named Melissa who lived in a house on the other side of the field. Oh, see, those lights, that was my son and me. We'd gotten back from the store. We heard something big moving through that field at the same time I was seeing it, and they went up and tried to see it. <coughs> and they said, I said, why did you shine the lights up in the trees? So, well, sometimes they're in the trees. Oh. They've all seen. And that particular house has shadow people problems as well. Oh. Yeah, and, and lights that appear over the house almost every night. So, I mean, here we have our uh, our pan-paranormal phenomena extraordinaire in in our uh, flap area. So, uh, that it, I, I, I haven't really gotten over that. I was, And I always ask people, what did you feel when you were having this experience? There was that little girl who had the Bigfoot experience and was terrified. Uh, people sometimes usually have ghost experiences and are frightened or, mm-hmm. or something that's not really good necessarily. Right. Uh, but I felt privileged i felt it completely at peace and i wonder if it's because maybe we bring to the experience what we bring to the experience sure uh whenever i station myself in this particularly in any kind of wilderness area i always will express respect and uh, love for the powers that be and uh oh i absolutely i i totally agree with what you're saying respect and, and maybe that's because maybe that's why I haven't had really such horrific um, experiences as many other people have at least not since the 70s you know well you know and I totally agree with what you're saying because people don't realize even when you're out there in the field researching something sometimes things happen like what you said you were sitting there obviously hoping to capture something and but in a way you really didn't expect it so when you actually see it you're like uh <laughs> yeah exactly um Again, it was not, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, people would often say, well, you know, the Bigfoot people, or they have a civilization of their own, they're not just animals. And, and now, having encountered what I believe was one of them, I believe that. I think that, uh, you know, the, I don't know if they have some kind of sophisticated civilization, but, but they're, they're certainly not a threat, uh, at least not in that experience. And uh, I think there's a, there's a lot that can be learned. Uh, down in the, that same night, as a matter of fact, down at another end of this area, uh, Shane was in a uh, an RV, and he heard uh, kind of this chattering outside all night long. Not, nothing uh, happened except later in toward the early hours of the morning. And <clears throat> the people at the neighborhood meeting said, oh, that's how they talk to each other, this, this kind of banter back and forth. Wow. Uh, but then later, uh, w- way late at night, uh, he happened to be near uh, the, the property line of, of a clearing and a cornfield. 
and he said a, a pickup truck came down and he went out to see what it was and he wasn't he had to walk across an area in order to see it but uh two men he said he couldn't really see it but it had some kind of emblem on the side and they were shining lights over in his direction now they happened to be stopping right in front of one of our trail cams Oh. And the next morning, when the trail cams were looked at, the truck truck was not there. So how did that truck <coughs> traverse that field? Then might stop right in front of the darn camera, and, and it didn't pick it up. Yeah, still trying good to question. Yeah. Let me ask you, Paul, is that area anywhere close to Kecksburg? Uh, it's somewhat north of Kecksburg, uh, at least like almost 100 miles or so. Uh-huh. Uh, it's funny because uh, the Kecksburg, uh, I think we're, we're kind of pushing the envelope out, and we might find that that's part of our, our – um, area you know but again you know it's, it's arbitrary you don't know whether uh ufo sighting or something is definitely attached to the same energies that are allowing the bigfoot sighting 100 miles away but mm-hmm. it's a start <coughs> well you know what because and and it's and, and i really and you're absolutely right because i belong to mufon and i also attend meetings here locally in miami uh where people you know they go in to see the a mufon presentation and you know how everybody like gets together in a group and they talk afterwards and yeah, I've had a lot of people that have come and talked to me, and besides having some type of either sightings of UFOs, they they also talk about things happening in their personal lives of you want to call it a paranormal nature of things that they feel or see. Like it's almost like they there's some type of connection between one and the other. It's just not that yeah, they true. see a sighting of let's say a ship or lights. It, something bleeds over. Yeah, uh, bleed over is a is a good term. Um, and that's why you know years and years and years now we've always asked, okay, you had this happen to you? Have you ever had anything else happen? Have you ever seen a UFO? We have a long questionnaire uh, that brings in all these different phenomena, and uh, <clears throat> more often than not, it will. Um, and, and, and the the statistics, matter that we've shared with Kathy Marden, because <coughs> she's done uh, been involved in the experiencer survey with the Dr. Ed, Edgar Mitchell found for research and direction terrestrial experiences um uh, she's a member of their advisory board along with a whole bunch of phds uh they look at experiencers uh and now they're asking you know other things besides your ufo experience have you seen ghosts have you had things as much as we've talked about today marlene so uh this is becoming mainstream now right but i know there's still a lot of people that think of extraterrestrial as strictly coming from outer space if they even go that far uh The other ones that think the UFOs are maybe man-made, just that unidentified origins, but not necessarily out of this world. And then I think it's, I've always believed that there is some type of theory that does exist that would account, what we're talking here, interdimensional. That doesn't necessarily, yeah. ha- whether it's because of this is the best way to travel versus, you know, distance linear, how we think about it, light years. Sure. You know, yeah. we could, if the travel is interdimensional, they don't have to go through the, what, what we still haven't figured out, <laughs> which is. Yeah. Well, maybe we are figuring it out because I remember, you know, when I was in the military, and uh, you know, I had a, cl- I had a clearance, not a very high one, mm-hmm. but you do, uh, you do find out that. The technology that the government has is um, at least 10 years ahead of what the rank and file people know about. Sure. I believe yeah. that. <coughs> I believe so, that. I, I'm... And they're, they're not in these – yeah, I mean they're in these flap areas for a reason, researching this stuff. So who knows where they've gotten. It's You get different stories. Well, um, But it's true. I mean how, I suppose if you're looking at, at, at the uh, the technology of this sort of thing, you could have – 
if you realize that you're already on another planet or orbiting another planet mm -hmm. uh, for this purpose in some parallel world, just make, sort of make, sort of um, make the transition into that world where you already are, and there you are. You didn't even have to go anywhere, really. Right. You just go across across the membrane. Yeah. Now the trouble with that, and a physicist I've talked to who have mentioned this, you you don't know what other things you're changing when you're doing that. Right. Okay. The whole time conundrum isn't valid. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back and shoot your grandfather, and then you're never never born. That's not how it works. You just create another another universe, another time space time stream, if you will. Right. And the one in which you were born doesn't really change. Um, on the other hand, we're moving through these all the time. I mean, you can go nuts just thinking about it. Oh, yeah. It. The, the, it's like infinite possibilities of almost what they call that butterfly effect where that one yeah, change yeah. Uh, basically creates a whole different outcome, for lack of a better word. But even, even, the, uh, even thinking about the technology is absolutely staggering. I so. know. It's, it's like, I mean, it could go in so many. Do you think that, let's say, for example, that triangle that you were talking about in Pennsylvania, do you think that's something that naturally occurs or do you think that it's some part of our either government or science kind of experimenting and act in other words that we opened it up on our end versus it being the other way around what do you think yeah. well again it could be all of the above. <laughs> one of the things we're looking at right now is called the bougere anomaly okay. okay this is a gravitational anomaly that is well known to uh garden variety geologists who look for oil and gas deposits mm -hmm. because they find that in the presence of <coughs> uh, the Bougier anomaly, uh, which is caused, they're not really entirely sure, but it's got something to do with the certain elements in the soil at certain depths. Uh, they'll be able to tell if there's oil and gas. Okay. Now, one of the byproducts of this is that the, the gravity is lighter in areas of the Bougier anomaly, which is really fluky. Really? You, you assume that when you go toward the center of the Earth, you get heavier because of yes. gravity. Yes. But that's not true in areas where the Bougier anomaly is present. Uh, when you walk down a hill, like toward the river in a Bougier anomaly area, you get a little bit lighter. Now, you probably won't notice this. Right. But I mean, it might be enough uh, to do what Einstein said gravity does, and that's bend space and time just enough to maybe uh, open up some membranes, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, where is this Bougier anomaly present? The most, um, the strongest by far Bougier anomaly play, period uh, uh, phenomenon in Connecticut is where? Right smack in the middle of our Litchfield Triangle. Goshen, Torrington, Litchfield, right there. Wow. See it on a map. The uh, areas of the Pennsylvania Triangle we're um, investigating, north of Pittsburgh, down through the Ohio Valley, Mothman vicinity of West Virginia. Right. All the way down to the uh, ones we were only just beginning, the Kentucky Panther Rock Triangle down in Kentucky. Uh-huh. All Bougier anomaly, right in a straight line. It's called the Rome Trough to geologists, all the way down there. So is that a coincidence? <laughs> Maybe Doesn't not. sound like it. <laughs> the uh, Lost Village case, 1970-72. We talked about it in the beginning. Bougier anomaly. Okay. Wow. So uh, maybe it's nothing to do with it, but we're investigating it now, and it seems to have some promise. Well, it's almost like, you know, they that they try to explain it, that the appearance of something being solid is only an appearance as far as how fast, you know, the, the law of physics. And it makes you think, is it something where density is if you're if you're saying that you there's actually less less weight, is it are we talking less density as far as 
everything that's shifting around that appears solid is not really as solid as it looks. I mean, it could well, be. I, like... I don't know if I'd go that far. It's just essentially gravity is is a little less. It's like you know, if you go to the moon. So it's the actual gravity part, not not the, the heaviness of yeah. the. Okay, okay, okay. I understand now. I yeah, understand. Yeah, the gravitons now. presumably would be less. But um, and again, it, it's um, other other characteristics of Bouguer anomaly areas are uh, a lot of radon gas, and you know you can get um, you can develop an immunity to almost any poison. If you take it long enough in small doses, including radon gas. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people um, in, say, the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area are um, really uh, almost immune to radon gas poison. All right. Wow. <laughs> Which, of course, is a carcinogen. Uh, and, of course, some of these some of these gases have hallucinogenic properties as well. So this gets into, you know, what are they seeing? Why are they seeing it? And when are they seeing it? And... Um, Everybody's seeing it. In the case of Mothman, you know, hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, right. and creatures, in my opinion. But uh, you wonder what other factors there were as well, uh, whether Boozer anomaly or um, hallucinogenic gases or whatever. I mean, we're still working on this. Well, as far as the, the hallucinogenic properties, normally when people hallucinate, they have their own personal hallucination. But if you've got people across right. the area, because hallucinating the same, a same version of something, it's like, yeah. okay, you know, what, uh, what, why, why is everybody hallucinating the same version of whatever it is that doesn't exist supposedly, or is made up? Yeah. That's such that I had not heard of that bougie anomaly. That is so interesting, and like you said, and it's concentrated in a certain area. Wow. Well, that's it, and it's it's known all over the the globe, but it's you know in certain areas. Uh, so far, we've found uh, parallels between it and paranormal flap areas. So again, this—we're only just starting on this, and maybe it's nothing, but sure. it sure doesn't seem like it's nothing. Well, if you're telling me that you've got what looks like some type of military and government there, they're just not there for nothing. I, I don't no, think I mean, so. again, wouldn't we love to find out how to use uh, technologies to use the, these uh, these uh, quote unquote paranormal? Uh, principles, you know, how sure. to travel between worlds or whatever, you know, and again, where does Bigfoot come from and go? Wouldn't they love to know? Well, Wouldn't I, we love to weaponize it? Of course, and it's like, I remember one time I had a guest, this gentleman, he wrote a book his, many, many years ago, back in the 90s, he was a, a border agent over there in Southern California in this stretch called the Ote Mountains, and he was describing how every once in a while they would have different people because this he said this is in the middle of the wilderness it's like nothing nobody living out there and um he says that when he was new you know you get the bad shift which is the night time the night and he says when you were out there you didn't have any type of lights you were supposed to work in the dark kind of thing hmm. and just to be real concise there was one time where they would they have where they could sight through with heat you know that's this is how they would look at the landscape and uh it didn't happen to him yeah, but right, it happened yeah. to a couple of the other agents that they were there and they had their superior tell them I want you to get in your truck and just drive and they were like what and they says I want you to get in your truck and drive away now like don't ask me why later on it came out uh, that supposedly um, this person that I, I, th I think it was an officer above them had actually seen on the heat scope that he said there was something large really large very similar to what you would think of the dimensions of a Bigfoot and this thing appeared to be stalking them. You know, when an animal's hunting another? Sure. 
when they were out there, they couldn't see or hear anything. Okay. Uh, and they never got that explained. And they said that every once in a while, they would come across groups of people who described something. And every once in a while, they would have auditory phenomena. Would, they would hear something, but they couldn't see anything. This wasn't in. Oh, the, the, you're talking about. This is Texas. This is California, so not Texas. Right, right. right. This is a Southern California, okay. the Ote Mountains. I'm thinking of the Big Thicket area in, in right. Texas. Right, and he, uh, yeah. they, they, and he says that that went on for years, and and of course, especially like in the '90s and everything. You know, this was like you don't talk about that. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. They, they, they just don't say anything. No, of course, it didn't ever get into any official report. And he says sometimes the word finally got out when somebody either was either retired or they were stationed somewhere else. Yes. That oh, kind of I know deal. the, I know the pattern. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, That's I don't want to kill my career and talk about well, this because I don't know how to explain it because I believe true. those, those two agents, when they got back, they were like, well, what's going on? Why'd you just tell us to drive away? What, there was nothing out there. Yeah. Uh, and I don't and, know, but like, where did it go? Yeah, the, what the, happened uh, to it? I know exactly. Uh, one, one of the, um, and of course, Bigfoot has been seen in, in Connecticut and even here in Rhode Island, which is like 48 miles long and 37 miles wide. Uh, I know some members of the National Guard who are in exercises in uh, what, what we call the Great Swamp management area because uh, a lot of Rhode Island is woods. I mean, it's this Providence and Warwick, and that's where most of the population is concentrated around Narragansett Bay. But there are plenty of uh, wilderness areas left in such a small state. And uh, members of the National Guard have sworn to me that they've been within, you know, you could hit a, hit Bigfoot with a snowball, you know, down there in the, in the, the Bigfoot um, in the uh, uh, Great Swamp Management Area, mm-hmm. and the big the big river <clears throat> and and Wood River Management Areas as well. <clears throat> we also live within uh, 20 miles or so of the the Bridgewater Triangle okay. in Massachusetts, and uh, Ben. Uh, you're among the people who probably heard him grow up on the air mm-hmm. uh, for all those years, and and the two years, two, almost two years ago now. How old am I? Uh, he got married, and uh, he lives a little bit closer to the triangle than I do. <coughs> but we still get over there now and then. And Bigfoot is there as well. Uh, and there are things that don't have names, yes. as I say, that we run into uh, in that in that Bridgewater Triangle area. We have um, things, I suppose. There are traditions of fairies and puckwudgies, yes, as I've they were called. Um, and there is an Algonquian, Algonquian word, uh, puckwudjij, which essentially was the, the natives who used that language group. That is little people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were we were up there one time in our four wheel drive, and we we were at the head of the Copacut Reservoir. And uh, it was just a beautiful place, so we decided to get out and look at the water. And there was a little clearing in the woods. Immediately, we felt as though we were being watched. Okay. Uh, it was a very, very strong feeling. So I just began to shoot photos at random. And uh, now, I, again, I did intelligence photography in the military. And, uh, you know, I know what I'm looking at. And you have to be very careful uh, in the woods uh, on a sunny day with the interplay of light on the leaves and all this stuff. Uh, but what struck me about two particular photographs was that their flesh tones in nature in our latitude here is – it would be very unusual unless okay. it's some kind of fungi and these were not fungi uh they looked like two small figures again two, two different photographs uh one looked like a uh, a face with, with almost like a monk-like cowl and the other looked like a long uh, figure in a fur coat 
uh, very clear face, this sort of thing. And uh, people like Jimmy Church have seen this and you know, fell out of his chair like when you know, we saw this. And, and again, we, we don't make any claims. We simply let people see what they right. <clears throat> feel they see. And um, I mean, pareidolia aside and all this stuff, I mean, again, speaking as one who did all this photography professionally in, in the military, I just, it just strikes me as very, very strange. Um, in the same way, over uh, back in Connecticut in the Litchfield Triangle, uh, that very week uh, we were up there with the production crew when all this weird stuff happened, uh, the little four-year-old boy in the family uh, had an invisible friend called Ashwar. Okay. I wonder if we came up with that name. And uh, so he said, oh, if she's out. I said, where is Ashwar right now? And this is at night. It's November of, uh, of, uh, of 2010. This is November 2010. Freezing cold outside. You'd never have made it, Marlene. Okay. <clears throat> Probably and, uh, not. <laughs> I went out and I just pointed the infrared camera up into the tree. And six seconds, th th this video can be seen on our uh, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben, you know, Facebook page. It's the okay. first video. And there's this thing that comes down out of the tree looking almost like a tadpole. <gasps> and it comes down and then a couple of frames in, the whole frame lights up and the thing is gone. And was this Ashwar? I mean, his invisible what? friend. And he said, this little kid said, oh, her people live in trees. Oh. So I assumed that it was spelled A-S-H-W-A-R. Right. Well, our intrepid friend, colleague Shane Searway, happened to be doing some research on this in uh, among uh, uh, Native American cultures in Central America and South America. And he, he ran into the term Ashwar, A-C-H-U-A-R which were the people or the spirits of the trees. Are you kidding? What? No. I don't kid. I'm too serious. <laughs> what? But, oh. There you go. So this four-year-old kid in Connecticut knows about Ashwar. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Why? Where's this little kid going to pick up that word from? And we get a photo, a video of one, apparently. And uh, oh. since that's been out, we've got other people contact us with uh, photos and videos that, that have been come from security cameras, things of this kind, of very similar creatures and other creatures that aren't similar. So, so I think, you know, again, it's the tip of the iceberg here, what most of us are used to, and it's uh, the first day of school. Let me ask you, Paul, do you think something like that, I'm going to use that example you just gave us, little boy that's already looks like it's something that was even um, witnessed or named by Native Americans. Do you think that we're talking here something like an elemental spirit, but that is part of our world? When I say our world, it's like, or or are we talking against something interdimensional? What, what do you think? Well, I'll go you one better, Marlene. Okay. I think we're dealing with, um, uh, we, we use the term multiversal. Mm -hmm. you know, all these worlds impinging upon one another. And we move through thousands, if not millions, of these worlds every day. It's just they're so similar, we don't really notice. Okay. Uh, when we're, it, when ours are impinged upon by something, that's when we start to get paranormal. Okay. okay. So uh, this little boy, how would he know this? Well, how no, would Mozart, that's incredible. Before, be able to write down, sit down and write brilliant piano concerti that he performed before the emperor and the pope and uh, wild Europe and at the age of four, five, and six years old. So in a way, the little boy, whose name was Dale, um, was probably may have been in touch with um, other versions of him. Because it's all us. These are not separate people, these versions of ourselves, where we know these things and where we are these things. We just have a hard time 
grasping that concept because, because let's face it, we are the center of our universes and we yeah. think that this is our only reality. But I think children, before, before we get our, our educational mitts into them, mm-hmm. uh, know, know these things yes. just as our, as our remote ancestors seem to know these things. E- even our, our Western religions or Eastern religions, to some extent, have these, uh, th- these archetypes buried in, in the depths of their doctrine yes. uh, or belief or experience, spiritual experience, and it's largely lost to interpretation today, even though it's still there. So I think this stuff is all out there, and this little boy hadn't been contaminated yet, maybe, and was still in touch with other selves. And then eventually, by now, uh, now he's coming up on high school, and he's and he or he's ready to graduate, mm-hmm. and he's uh, you know been pretty much indoctrinated with you know you don't believe that stuff except when you're a little kid. Right. When in, in actuality, it's as real as it gets. And let me ask him, so, Paul. I'm I'm, I'm going to ask you because sometimes there's debate. With let's go with. Um with the claims of extraterrestrials first of all do you think there's more than one type and secondly do you think we're going to be at a disadvantage once if we ever have what they call that contact of the fourth type which is face to face are we going to be on the short end of the stick well i don't know um one can argue that we usually are (laughs) (laughs) one way or the other uh on the other hand uh i'm very I'm always intrigued by how people use the term advanced. Okay. Okay. We, we assume because, because we live in a society that's drunk with technology. Mm-hmm. Respect for, uh, and we use the term advanced for people who have better gadgets than we have or better technology. Well, I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. I mean, who was the most advanced nation of the 1930s? Nazi Germany. Well, how'd that yeah. work out? You know? Yes. I'd rather have uh, a civilization that is advanced morally and spiritually as opposed to one, or, or maybe, maybe there is one that's advanced technologically as well as the other two, but I'd rather have the other two first. Right. So that being said, uh, it's difficult to say. You know, nothing in the paranormal is what it appears to be. Uh, Stanton Friedman, who, we, uh, who honored us by writing the um, uh, forward for our 2016 book uh, that Ben and I wrote, uh, The Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, uh, essentially says that Okay, you've got a civilization from another planet, and there's every reason to believe. I don't think anybody doesn't believe that there's there are civilizations out there. There have to be, right? You know, with hundreds of billions of stars, and you know, probably trillions of planets. Um, a lot of which we there are thousands of planets we know about, many of which are, are not that different from our own. Right. Uh, <clears throat> that there are other civilizations, but even if they could get here in the conventional sense. Stan says, why would they want to talk to us? We're, we're a, I'm trying to think of the exact quote. Uh, we're a, um, uh, a primitive species whose primary activity is tribal warfare. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to talk to us either, you know. So uh, <clears throat> I think Stan has a point on that way. Uh, however, uh, I think we have to consider life as we don't know it. Exactly. There's always, you know, we're up on Mars, a zillion bucks later, scratching around. I think we're finally realizing we have to dig beneath the surface, but we're still looking for life as we know it. What about life as we don't know it? Exactly. Uh, life that's not based on carbon. Everybody used to laugh at that until the 1970s when somebody discovered these volcanic vents on the bottom of the, of the seas uh, because we hadn't generally been able to get down that deep before. And you've got totally unknown forms of life that are not dependent on the sun for their, for their biology. Mm-hmm. They're dependent what to us are poisonous sulfuric gases and acids that come out of volcanic vents, kill us immediately. So all these news. So there is an entirely different ecosystem we didn't know anything about, and we wouldn't look for. 
And then you've got multiversal ecosystems where the laws of physics are very different. And bingo, you've got all kinds of life like Ashwar. Well, no, Uh, I mean, even if you go on the premise of an uh, ever creative universe, in other words, ever expanding. Yes. I mean, it's like, okay. But will we be on the short end of the stick? Uh, Just in running around the multiverse, as Ben and I kind of do, there are whole areas we haven't gotten into yet about that uh but there i think are lots of neighbors uh most of whom are probably indifferent or don't know about us any more than we do about them although Mm -hmm. we do know about them that's why we have paranormal experiences we put our labels on them but there are parasites who are are negative and who are hostile i think there are plenty of uh, very positive ones as well among them uh remember talking about the house in 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 connecticut where they had the very very tall beings who yes uh we reached up through the ceiling, you know, and didn't seem to be affected by the matter in this particular neighborhood. Uh, we call them the clerics. Be- that was Ben's term. Wow. And because because Very of the way they were dressed or, or... Because of the way they dress. Okay. Yeah. And because of, of their quiet, gentle, and compassionate nature, and the fact that they are uh, the ones who are aware of us are willing to uh, give us a hand because they don't like parasites either, you know? Okay. Um, so uh, that that's a very long story, but there's a picture I think it's from uh, from Kenton, England, uh, or one of one of the the parish churches around there. And uh, somebody just took a picture of the altar, and they, there's this really scary, very very tall figure. It's a classic. It was 1830s, and it has a mask over its face. It just it looks totally unnatural because it's you know like nine or ten feet tall, very thin, mm-hmm. and uh, it's considered one of the scariest and most legitimate ghost pictures out there. Well. If I'm a hobbit, if if that's not one of the clerics, okay, <laughs> and uh, we know some of them, and I think this is where it gets really weird, and I'm going to sound pretty strange, oh. uh, but they they wear the masks over their faces when they pray. Okay, but they're good people, okay, and they're not ghosts or spirits or di- they're people, you okay. know, of a different species, but there they are. Uh, there are a number of others, of course. Uh, we call there's one we call the lion people. We've had personal encounters with them. And again, this is in the presence of multiple witnesses, so it's not just me being nuts or whatever. Uh, or maybe it's too much radon gas. I, I don't know. But um, these are all things that we record um, and we don't often talk about. But uh, I think that would we be at the short end of the stick? With some, yes. With some, no. I think the more aware we become of our whole selves, which okay. are uh, sharing the identities of hmm. these beings in, in, in certain aspects of the multiverse, we are a cleric. Or a parasite. Or oh, depending a on how you want to look at it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's all one big us, really. It's the Gaia theory taken to its logical conclusion. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to the founders of our country, with the notion of individual <clears throat> individualism, yeah, that, that that's very important. But we have to realize, too, that we're all part of, of each other and of all this other stuff, too. And we just, as I say, it's the first day of school. Yes, absolutely. So not a bad thing, though. It's not a bad thing. I don't. I mean, I'm sure that there's moments, like, depending on what your experience is. In your case, let's say when you saw the Bigfoot, you were surprised, but you were like in awe because it's almost like this is what you hope that you're going to witness at some point in your life when you're doing work in this field. And then there's other people that just don't grasp it, and for them it's frightening. Yeah. Well, we interviewed, um, I think his name is Langdon, from the uh, Killing Bigfoot series. And uh, a lot of people, even when we heard, we suppress no 
opinions on our show. Everything we're open to all discussion. But a lot of people wrote in they were upset. Why are you having this guy on? It's because we want to hear what he has to say. You know, and we don't agree with going out and killing anything. Never mind Bigfoot, uh, because it's you know, especially having experienced this. After this is after we had him on, but um, his idea was it's it's really just a mammal. It's very good at playing hide and seek, and if we can bag a specimen which science can study it which strikes me as extremely naive for one thing right. and extremely short-sighted and very uh a narrow very narrow interpretation as it is so uh, we had him on and and uh he didn't really encourage us by saying anything more than that so i'm afraid that our interpretation was correct but i mean he has a right to his opinion sure maybe he's right i don't believe that he is uh and i don't think he's ever going to be successful because these are not your ordinary garden variety mammals will come and go exactly. in that sense as as we've discussed and plus they deserve respect so right although hunters i have I had a lot of context of sporting hunters do they are people with respect they're great they're great um forces for conservation of the mm -hmm. environment this sort of thing so i mean i, I get that but i mean something like bigfoot uh, or any of these i just you know you have to eat you hunt but you're not going to eat Bigfoot, certainly. So right, exactly. You know, have respect. Right, and if this is the only way that you think you're going to get proof, I, I totally disagree with that. I totally disagree yeah, with that. Exactly, me too. And especially, yeah. and and I agree with you up to a certain point. If you want to apply the rules that, let's say, a hunter does, whether it's tracking them or w all the things, I think up to a certain point you're going to get disappointed <laughs> because I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, just... I respect hunters too because you know when you're out in a wilderness area, particularly uh, the Bridgewater Triangle uh, out there, where you know all these things have been seen, the uh, they see everything. So you talk to hunters and you talk to Native Americans if there are any uh, who are indigenous to that area, because their traditions will tell you a lot. And a lot of people don't even talk to them. That's a really bad mistake because their traditions sum up what's really going on, and the hunters see everything. So. Um, uh, that way we were able to track down a weird phenomenon known as the koi dog. Um, I, I know you have a lot of it in Florida, too, where domestic dogs interbreed with coyotes and produce okay. these kind of goofy uh, hybrids, which mm -hmm. are just dogs, but they can be pretty scary. So okay. yeah, th you can always learn from anybody. Oh, sure. I mean, it's it's it. I'm I'm I guess I'll, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. Uh, a lot of people get scared because of when they realize how much we don't know versus what we know. I, yeah, I personally it's, think it's very exciting. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. It's just, you know, it's an occasion for learning more and for pushing the envelope, you know, because, you know, it's, it's just when you think you've heard everything, you know, the next day comes along and what, you know, it's. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's of course. Yeah. Of course. That's why. And so, again, first day of school, I think, you know. It's like everything. I guess it's it's. It's all in you absolutely what you made a good point, like why that little boy was able to see something that sounds like it could be either an interdimensional or an elemental, or whatever that even Native Americans had named. Why was he able to see it and maybe an adult? It was just because of the how can I say there was no disbelief in him. That's right, he was open, he was and open, he was pure, yeah, open. And um, I'll give an example though of how we get older and how we might misinterpret things or maybe I was misinterpreting I don't know but back at the dear old uh, Augensburg State Hospital when I was a seminary student uh, there was one particular hallway in in this ward and uh, people didn't like to work there at night and it was considered to be kind of uh, you know kind of strange and you know all sort of thing 
and uh, I happened to be making some pastoral visits in that ward one night, uh, or actually one day, and uh, I, I stretched it out to three days because I encountered a, a patient who said that she was a psychic medium and that the, uh, w what was haunting the hallway was, was a man who had died there who was, and his wife was in there or would be, and he was waiting to, quote, take her home. Wow. You know, so I said, okay, that's the classic garden variety 19th century interpretation. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's correct. Yes. So the chapel also happened to be in that particular hallway. Okay. So I disappeared in there. And uh, the staff said, well, he's a seminary student. I guess he's in the chapel. So, you know, I should have been out with the patients, but they, they, they cut me some slack. <laughs> so over a period of three days, I did something I, re I don't like to do, but I've done it several times and had a lot of interesting experiences because and that and I don't like to talk about because it, it sounds like I'm doing the medium thing and I'm not I simply get into a meditative state okay in an area like this and if I encounter a neighbor in the quiet fine and uh, I, I didn't feel any parasites near you because just you give them a wide berth mm -hmm. so what I encountered was a man waiting for his wife but he was waiting for his wife across the, the St. Lawrence River at the railroad station at Prescott, Ontario, in a parallel reality that was very similar to ours, but where it was not considered unusual to talk to the neighbors. This is where I got the term neighbor, because he referred okay. to me as a neighbor, okay? And he couldn't see me, but he's standing on the on the platform, which was there in our world, too. World too. I used to grab the train and go to Montreal all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, yeah, but, but uh, I noticed that, that, that the, the spatial... <clears throat> relationship was very similar to where it was in our world, but the temporal relationship was not. He had been standing on this platform for what to us would have probably been years. His time was measured differently, and I, I didn't have a okay. lot of time to get into some of this, but um, a few weeks later, this presence disappeared from this hallway, okay, and, and the, the medium patient had, was long gone. She'd been discharged. But you can see where if you have a narrow interpretation, that's how she would have interpreted. What sure. else could it be but the guy waiting for his wife? He's dead and she's about to die. And, and what else could it be? So, again, uh, broadening the concepts really opens up literally whole new worlds. So if my interpretation was correct, that's what happened. Well, not too long ago, I uh, interviewed this lady. She's, she lives out in the suburbs of Chicago. And she, she has a, a paranormal group. But and. Her regular work, she's a nurse, a hospice nurse, and she's been doing it for many years. And she was telling me, she goes, Marlene, sometimes I have patients that I, I, I've tended them for years. And she says one of the things that I know that as far as that they're going to be dying soon is that they will start telling me or talking about seeing relatives or people that have passed on. Not about them, as in that they relate that they're seeing them. Uh, so she, that's why she knows in some cases since she's tended to them for it wasn't like that she just came in this last week when she talks when she says certain names she knows that who that person is talking about sometimes is a deceased maybe spouse or some other relative and she says this is she says she's seen that very commonly where she says that's how she knows when some of these patients will be passing away very soon where they yeah. actually start seeing or like in talking like if that person's there. Oh, I'm not saying there are no visitation apparitions, things like this. I'm sure there are. I'm just saying in this particular case, this turned out to be really, really interesting. 
And uh, if I was right, then didn't match the interpretation of what uh, of what she was uh, she was well, saying. Well, it makes um, you also think, Paul. Do you think that's also like just like when we're children that we this disbelief is suspended? Do you think also that when we're older, or maybe we're going in the direction of that we're going to leave this life, or as we know it, that we also our ability to see things that have always been there, in other words, is heightened just yeah, like when we're a uh, child. Funny you bring that up. I've been thinking about that uh, uh, lately as I approach 65, and uh, um, you know, it's almost as if you you do kind of reverse, and and you get and you realize a lot of things you thought as a kid you were right, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you've kind of gone around Robin Hood's barn as we used to say in Connecticut, um, in, you know, throughout your life in order just to get back to the same place, and uh, you find too that. Um, uh, even some of your your um, uh, attitudes and the way you, the way you look at things and the way you feel things are changing and getting in a way maybe simpler. And maybe yes. that's just what happens at this age. I don't know. Or or maybe it's uh, maybe you're more correct uh, about that. So I, I I don't know. But yeah, I think um, things do tend to simplify. And maybe you get um, especially if you're in this field, maybe you get a little reverse education mm-hmm. and some of the prejudices that were put into us in in the the pro, in the school system or something or whatever, if yes. they were, uh, are um, somewhat mitigated. Yeah, I, I believe. I, I, it's almost like all those filters that we put up in our conscious mind as, no, that can't be real, or I can't see that, or, you know, that doesn't make sense. It, just those filters fall away. Sure. And we're able to That's see good. things that really have been there all along, but like you said, uh, whether we're conditioned a certain way, uh, life gets in the way we're busy you know when we're younger we have children we have a family we have a job god knows nowadays that if you don't multitask what's wrong with you um all those things stop people from i think being observant is the only thing i can think of i think that's true yeah it's a forest for the trees kind of thing you know? yes absolutely um, you know you really see this in uh, dealing with uh, shamans you know and who are not very common mm-hmm. and uh, to, to be one and you'll, you'll often run into people, especially online, who are sh- say they're shamans and they read a book by somebody else who thinks they're a shaman and, or they've been to a few classes. Uh, that's not how it works. You have to walk the walk and live the life. And I'm very proud of Ben because he studied under an, a full-blooded Aztec shaman for several years and he, he still would never claim to be one, you know, exactly. uh, even though he has shamanic things happen to him. Um, but... I think it's a matter of just you have to you have to it really with anything, but particularly with that in this field, you have to walk the walk and live the life, and uh, not just talk the talk. Absolutely, I I, I agree, and I, I hate to say it, I, I love technology in the sense that it's made life easier for us as humans, but at the same time, it's also worked to our disadvantage, because I think we've yes. lost touch with. I'm going to go back to what I just said: observing things, because right. when to ob- right. to observe something. You have to have be patient, have time. Sometimes that's what we lack of the most, you know, just sit there and observe something. Well, we need silence. Yes. Uh, the basis of any spirituality, let alone anything that's going to make you aware of uh, anything deeper than what you see at the end of your nose, uh, has to do with silence. And a lot of us are afraid of silence. Mm-hmm. Even in the 60s, everybody had their transistor radios and the, yeah. uh, the, the uh, first generation earbuds were in the ears and... You know, nobody could hear anything, let alone each other. Couldn't even hear themselves. And yes. uh, 
to culture, I find that spiritually that is the hardest thing for people to do. Uh, if you want to approach understanding any of this multiverse stuff uh, or to get any insights, you've got to learn to be silent. And that's when you begin to see. Yes. Where the distractions are taken away. I think um, I think that a lot of the uh, of the material that our subconscious mind captures, it it when you're like you said when you quiet down, it actually comes through to the front where you recognize yeah. it. So, but anyway, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been wonderful, wonderful to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours because all your theories, um, I think that, uh, especially when it comes to supernatural events, by this, uh, whether it's extraterrestrials or ghosts or uh, doppelganger, whatever, I think sometimes we've just been too constricted. No, I agree. As yeah. how we see it or how we wanted to explain it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's like. True. So it's exciting I, times that we're. I have nothing more. against science about get, getting proof. I, I have no, no problem with that. I don't think you have to exclude one for the other. But uh, sometimes if you can't get the proof that certain scientists say this is the only type of valid proof, then if you can't get this, then that doesn't exist or that's wrong. I don't yeah. think that's accurate. That, that's, that's doing a disservice to um, any, any type of explorers, that's whether true. we're talking about actual exploration true. or in theory. Right, right. So I love, I love talking to you. And I again, I want to thank you so much for uh, spending this time with me. Thank you, Marlene. It was a great it pleasure. has been wonderful and have a fantastic day. Well, we'll hope for the best. Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, my God, guys. Oh, wow. It has been a great talking to Paul. It has been great. First of all, I'm not kidding. Uh, I discovered uh, Paul Eno, I want to say, oh, no, it has to be earlier than that, 07, 08. And um, back then, I was always looking for either podcasts or people that would talk about the paranormal uh, and that basically that they had, I don't, they had new theories or just they just sounded reasonable that that. And I, I, I would listen to him, and, and I remember, like he said, his, his son was young. I think he was a teenager at that time when he brought him on. And uh, I remember listening to his theories of how he explained what some people consider ghostly was basically uh, almost like a, a bleed over from another dimension. And he had a lot of ideas which were like, I was like, wow, yes, and... Um, but by the same token, you listen to his experiences as a seminary student, okay, where, you know, he's holding down this girl that's floating. Hello? Like he said, and, and, and at, a, at, a, at a, it sounds like maybe the psych ward of a hospital, where I'm sure, can you imagine these doctors are, okay, how do I explain this? You know, I could I could go into my medical books and try to describe the symptomology or psychiatry and you know or the DSM to try to apply some type of diagnosis, but uh, the float thing, <laughs> what, 
what do you there is no diagnosis for that i mean as far as what's causing what's causing this person to float okay and i'm sure that's why him and the other priests were being called in because they were probably at a real loss on how to explain this and you know not more than once i've heard from different sources where sometimes people with supposed mental illnesses sometimes are open channels or and or that a lot of times not all the times uh some of the things that they describe that they're seeing or hearing that we attribute to being uh severe mental illness they're actually really in other words it's we're not talking strictly chemical imbalance in the brain maybe they're actually seeing it because for some reason they're able to see something interdimensional or in this case what he was saying where you get an attachment from an entity that's parasitic and i'm going to do a complete show on that because with um, some of the srt work that i've done as a hypnotherapist you do find that exactly what he was describing okay that you do have parasites that sometimes in, in, in it depends in some cases people are describing them as the parasite is the entity of a deceased person in this case we're talking something that's obviously negative or non-human or in what they call dark force entities and uh in some schools some people, some doctors have come across when they're doing this work where the entity is actually what they call an extraterrestrial as in uh not a deceased human soul not demonic per se or non-human but extraterrestrial as in the origins are either in another dimension or another planet and they're using that person's body as a host either for to observe uh and basically they're asked to leave it's 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 way out there i'm going to do another show just on that but what he was describing it's it's i've heard of this before and uh i think he had the chance in those years as a seminary student like i said i wasn't kidding i'm sure that when those doctors called them in it was like hey guys you know i'm going to talk to you guys what i probably i might not even be able to admit to my other colleagues is like how do i explain a floating patient or people doing things uh, like you maybe you're the ones that don't understand and or at the very least you're going to keep my confidence because i just don't know what to do with this or to handle this okay yeah we're giving maybe this person medication to address symptoms of whatever their diagnosis is of their mental illness but she's still floating <laughs> Or she's still displaying some other type of whatever. I think that is coming from somebody like him. Okay, he's had other experiences because I remember, like I said, when I was listening to some of his podcasts of things that he saw when he was a seminarian that he witnessed, especially back in the 70s, where he himself described like, or he, like he said when the floating refrigerator or, or I think it was slammed or it was moved like that if you think about it, it's like this does this can't happen I mean okay there, there's no wires that are going to pick up a refrigerator and move it it just doesn't happen that way and you could tell he is he's 
does have up to a certain mind, the mind of a skeptic, as in, I'm first going to try to explain this by natural, ordinary means before I go down the road of this was something supernatural in origin, whatever the origin is. Who knows? But yes, and I wasn't kidding. Uh, for all uh, the fear that might be generated because when you realize how much we don't know versus what we do know, because remember, we, we think we're at the top of the food chain and whatever, whatever. Again, I'm a humanist. I believe in us human beings. I think it's exciting to realize how much we don't know. It's scary up to a point, but then it's almost like the 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 possibilities of exploration of discovery like i said whether we're talking physical explorations whether it's on our planet interplanetary going to mars or whether we're talking interdimensional or spiritually or how all these things bind us um how things can change by our understanding of the laws of physics all those things i think it's exciting I think it's it's like like I told him that's when the horizon falls off the horizon it's like <laughs> that's great uh, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of discoveries that'll happen I hope to live a very long life but I'm sure uh, far beyond my lifespan um, I mean let's put it this way if you're a sci-fi writer or fantasy there's a lot of fodder there uh, for no matter how outlandish or how extraordinary it's you might be actually writing the future and there was one thing that I forgot to mention and it's it's really interesting as far as your perception I can't this was a, a, a sci-fi short story this I read this years ago and it was a short story for the life of me I cannot remember the title or the author okay but the story goes like this real quick there's a mission uh, goes to a planet I can't remember they went there intentionally or they ended up there where they landed on okay is of extremely dangerous um, planet as far as geography the the gases that are on the planet surface are poisonous to humans I mean this was like absolute worst place for them to have landed and I want to say I think it was a three-person crew and um, at this time the humans had a uh, a machine that basically would transform you in uh, in other words it would mold you in order for you to be able to go out into whatever the environment was and be adapted to it in other words you could be able to breathe whatever the 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 the, the atmosphere was whatever the topography was it was like Almost like in Star Trek, you remember when you would get this thing where you would be able to talk and speak the language? Well, the same thing. Basically, it would enable you to acclimate immediately to go out. So they send the first person out to scout out. And this person never comes back. And they're thinking, after a while, okay, what happens to this person? Second explorer says, okay, uh, we've waited long enough. Maybe something happened to this person. Maybe... Despite the machinery, we didn't. He didn't acclimate exactly right. Second person goes out to search for the first person, and uh, sure enough, the second person fails to come back. So this last person's left, and he's like, 
he's like he's he's by himself and he kind of finds himself in a quandary but ultimately he makes a decision that he's gonna go into this thing and go outside and look for his the other two people and find out what happened to them are they hurt do they need help do they need to be brought back he doesn't want to leave them behind but he decides he's gonna do one more trip outside so he does it and the punchline it's not a punchline it's a story it's an actual story what happens is when he goes outside after being uh basically acclimated or becoming something that can live on the surface of this place that they had landed on was once he went outside this place was beautiful it was beautiful what would have been poisonous gases to a human were wonderful the, the landscape that would have looked inhospitable to a human was wonderful to make a long story short basically once you went out there as the creature that actually could thrive and flourish in whatever this planet or this landscape was you didn't want to return you didn't want to return so what looked to them as human beings from inside the ship as being inhospitable and a dangerous and a poisonous place like we got to get out of here once you went out there as a creature that belonged there everything changed and they hadn't come back because they were hurt they hadn't come back because they didn't want to come back they wanted to stay there there we go. I, I got to look up that story. And I know it's a well-known, it was a short story. I, it was part of an anthology and I, God, I can't remember. If anybody knows it, email it to me. If you, I read that a few years ago. But anyway, guys, I hope you like the show. Subscribe to my channel. Hit the like button. If you're seeing me on YouTube, make sure, or whether you're catching me on podcast, make sure to subscribe to my channel so that you get notifications of when I release a new show. My true believers, don't forget to send me your story. Go, go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to the submit your story tab, okay, and we'll take it from there. We'll figure out something out, whether you want to send it to me in an email, you want to tape yourself, you want to get together, and I'll interview you just like I do my guests on Skype or on Google Hangouts. There's, believe me, there's a thousand ways that I could get that story from you. Uh, also, catch me on Facebook and on Twitter via Periscope, where I do a lot of live streaming. And again, I want to thank you so much for being part of my audience. You're all great, and I look forward to spending more time with you and some other super special guests that I've got coming up, which I know you guys are going to love. Take care.